You know when someone <laughs> said something that sounds like it's smart, but actually it's dumb? Gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. It's not about the scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal. This is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. I'm his guest, Ethan Bartlett. And this is my host, Michael Lilienthal. Ah! I added it! I added... I I added to it, so you can't accuse me of having always done the same thing. (sighs) Fine. Whatever. Yeah, so there. That's right. I I beat you. I beat you. 20 seconds into the episode, and I already beat you. You can't. Yeah, and unbeatable. Duh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But a lot of things are new in Michael and Ethan and Roman Scotch. Are they? Yep. We got a new room for one thing. Yes. This is a room we've never recorded in we've before. Never recorded in this particular room ever. Yes. So. Why is that, Michael? I am in a different location. I moved. Uh, I think we mentioned that in the last episodes that I was in the process of moving, and that moving has now completed. Very good. And I have moved, and I am now in a new place. That's (laughs) probably you should just cut out four of those sentences in the edit, because one would have done the job. Yeah. But, you know, we are nothing if not wordy. It's true. We we get very, very wordy in this podcast. We use too many words. And sometimes we are redundant in the words that we use. But not that often. But sometimes. But sometimes. Just not that often. Right. Sometimes we're repetitive, too, which is probably worse. Yeah. All right. So, now that we've <laughs> warmed our voices up with stuff we can definitely get rid of. Um, yes. Yeah. So, Ethan has made the trip out to this new room where there's also scotch. Is there scotch? There is scotch I don't see room. scotch at this time. I know you don't. You better disprove me quick. Uh, I guess I will. You made, a, you made the trip out, so. Yeah, thank you. Yep literally the same thing we do every time. I don't know why it was a <laughs> process to decide this time. I, I don't know. You know, I, I thought about changing it up. What if we did Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch where we didn't drink anything? Yeah, you know neither of us would make the trip just to see each other. I know. So, I know. the scotch is really the only thing holding this podcast together. <laughs> Our entire relationship is built on scotch. <laughs> That's truer <laughs> about more relationships in my life than I would like to admit. It's, it's, it's a linchpin scotch. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is this? The scotch that we'll be drinking today is the Dalmore Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, aged 12 years. Ah, very good. Dalmore 12. It's a beautiful... It looks like card... I... It doesn't look like cardboard. It looks like leather, but I think it is. Like, it is. It is cardboard. cardboard. It's just yeah, treated it's and just very beautiful and like ruby colored. Yes, I was gonna say garnet. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, you know, uh, beautiful sort of minimalist mm-hmm. design with words in the head of a sort of a head oh, of a stag on it. I should, I should read what it says on the back here. Uh, 1263. The Delmore's heritage dates back to 1263. I'm not going to read the rest of that one. That's, yeah. that's not a real year, though. 1263. Yeah. <laughs> that year didn't happen. Sure. <laughs> like, do you remember 1263? Didn't I... think so. QED. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you can't just say QED and win an argument. <laughs> well, it spells qued, which is... Greek for I am right now. Uh, QED. <laughs> We're gonna move on. <laughs> uh, the art of the Dalmore. The Dalmore is crafted using a 150-year-old artisan process passed down through the gen. Now Wait the a years second. Don't Wait add a up. second. Yeah. See, I told you. <laughs> They're claiming that 1263 was 150 years ago. So someone's lying, and I think it's this bottle of scotch. I think this whole bottle of scotch is an unreliable narrator. (laughs) Eight hand-beaten copper sills of variable shape and size deliver a full-flavored and complex new spirit, which is then enriched over the years in the finest American white oak ex-bourbon casks. Also... It's American bourbon casks. Yeah. Which America wasn't around until 1263. America wasn't around until 1263. 
America was barely around in 1963. Right. Uh, hand selected Oloroso Sherry Butts. Sherry Butts. <laughs> <laughs> this <That's>... is Buttscotch. <laughs> Buttscotch. It's like we're drinking butts. <laughs> yeah, you came all the way out from Madison for Buttscotch. Yeah, that's what I did. So... Uh, troubling. Master distiller Richard Patterson then makes his final selection, harmonizing the spirit of the chosen casks in bespoke sherry butts <laughs> until he decides that the precious contents are ready for bottling. Interesting. Yes. So, uh, it gives good. tasting notes on the back here, too, um, which we can, we can I look don't, at. Yeah, I don't know that I want to know them. That's okay. Yet. No. So, let's look at the bottle this. here. Look Ooh. at that bottle. Oh, that is a very beautiful bottle. It's got that stag on the front. Do you realize how close this podcast becomes to, like, an unboxing video? Yeah. <laughs> unboxing like, video in audio form. Except it's the worst unboxing video because there's no video and we are not cute girls. <laughs> and, like, everyone knows those are the only two reasons you watch unboxing videos. At least I assume so. I don't think I've ever watched an unboxing video. I can't say I have either. Yeah. But I assume it's for the cute girls. Who also get, like, stuff. I don't know. I We're don't know. I don't, how does that work? How does the morning. internet work? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. All I know is the podcast production process in which we record onto cassette tape and then send our cassette tape to our dozen or so listeners. Which, if we could afford more cassette tapes, we might have more li- listeners. Do you ever think of that? I can't say... That I've thought of that particular problem. <laughs> so, QED. <laughs> We're gonna open this bottle now. It's a beautiful bottle. It's, I, it's I, a beautiful bottle. I'm a little sorry I interrupted you because it's nope, just, okay. again, very minimalist, but there's a stag head, like, emblazoned on it. It's like, it's... Yeah, let the gentle there, listener. Hear, I'm hear tapping it. the stag head. Yeah, the so now we're now we're also an ASMR video. Yeah, we've been ASMR since. Yeah, that's one. true. That's true because so. we always pour the scotch by the thing. Yeah, so that's probably seventy five percent of the people who do listen are just listening for those just momentary scotch ASMR. Right, sounds. and then they turn off the rest of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 They use the tape for rope for no. household chores. Anyway, I'm going to open this bottle now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, please, get some whiskey in us. All right. Um, Before we clink our glasses. Call your wife in here. Yeah, Karen! Okay. Karen, who is definitely here now, is going to read the rules, as she always does. As she always does. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Those are the rules. Yeah, get out, Karen. Get out! (laughs) Go buy us some more scotch. (laughs) Or some more books, because that's or what you books. do after being on this podcast, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Not that I object to having five new Madeline Langle books in my <laughs> <Right>. life. <laughs> Couldn't remember her name for a second, because I always mix her up with Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. Uh, both excellent authors. Very. Only one of whom we have discussed on this show. True. Uh, yeah. So... Uh, now that we have the rules, we'll kink our, clink our, kink. We'll do what now? We'll, here, nope. We're gonna do something do you, very do heterosexual. You Freudian nipple right there? <laughs> and, uh, make our glasses touch so that they emit sound waves. 
<laughs> that might have been the worst way you could have put it so far. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Slotcha. Interesting breeze <laughs> passed through this room. Mm, yes. Very uh, watery. Uh, some sort of watery, pneuma. perhaps lifey breeze. Mm, mm, you're uh, in dangerous territory, sir. I know I am. Uh, so, uh, what book are we discussing? We are discussing the ocean. Because this the is a podcast. In case, well, surely the gentle listener has gathered this by now. But this is a podcast where we discuss books. Yes. Obviously. I mean, Obviously. that's that's how we started this entire podcast. Like, what have we this been whole episode. What talking, have we been talking about, about this whole time? Except Nothing books. but books. Definitely <laughs> exactly. books. Books books, and only books. And also books. Yes. Okay. And the book we're discussing today is the book by At Neil himself. You have to... <laughs> we are not on Twitter oh. at this moment. So you have to say <laughs> his real name. how Twitter works. You just say at and then something and then it automatically makes people know that... No, that's how Snapchat works. Oh, that's Snapchat. No, wait. No, no, no. That's Instagram. Snapchat is the one where you tie a note to a pigeon and then whisper the name of the person you want to receive the note into the pigeon's ear, release the pigeon, and then the pigeon, like, drops the note, but then ten seconds later the note bursts into flame, so you don't have the note anymore. So you better be able to read quickly. Got it. All right. (laughs) Sounds good. I learned something about social media today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Don't make me explain MySpace to you. We'll be here all night. Uh, okay. Yes, we're reading The Ocean at the End of the Lane. By Neil Gaiman. Oh, yes. That uh, how much? How many of Neil Gaiman's works would you say you have read? Oh, works. Okay, so works are we talking like including short stories? I'm going to say published books. Published books. Yeah. Um. Let's see. So book-length short story collections. Um. As well as comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as comics, so that'd be... Well, I've read the entire Sandman series. Right. Uh, and the Sandman uh, Overture. Uh, American Gods, uh, Stardust, um, most of Fragile Things, this, um, that might be it? Okay. So that's like... And a couple, like, pieces here and there. Right. So, yeah, I think I, at a certain point in my life, I had read... Oh, Miracle Man. I read his run on Miracle Man. Yes, yes, which was excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point in my life, and this was several years ago now, I had read every published book-length work that, like, was in print. Because I think there's one that he wrote very early on that is super out of print, couldn't find it. Uh, one or two, maybe. And, like... There was some uncollected comics and short stories. But other than that, I had read everything. I think I'm a little behind on that. I think there's a few volumes at this point that I haven't read. But I would say a solid 90% of his printed and bound-in book form work have I read. Gotcha. All right, um, so including more than all I of have. the all of the print books, I would say, again, except for those couple like right. super obscure ones. I'm also a plebe, and I was introduced except... to Neil Gaiman by Stardust. I wouldn't call that... Being a plebe. Okay. <laughs> Wait, do you mean the book or the movie? The movie. Oh, then, I saw you're, the movie. then you're definitely a plebe. Yep. I saw the movie, so it was based on a book, read the book, loved the book, and went in search of other things by that same author. But so. at the same time, like, whatever gets you in the door, really, yeah. as far as Neil Gaiman goes. So, Neil Gaiman is probably, I mean, I guess one of the authors whose works we're both together most familiar with Sure. on this show. Like, I may be... Slightly more familiar percentage-wise with Gene Wolfe, but you had barely read any... You, I mean, you'd read a couple Gene Wolfe, but not, like, the majority of his... Oh, his opus. Ouvre, I think is how you say the French one. Alright, we just offended all of our French listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to tell you. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Did I, have I told you what cassatois means? No. Okay. Hamilton fans, go look up Cassatois and report back. And now I've literally offended all of our French listeners. Good. Including the ones who weren't offended by the other thing. Okay. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, later you're going to look this up and hurt me. Alright. Look forward to that, gentle yep. listener, when yep. I hurt Ethan. 
<laughs> oh, they always do. I know. In fact, I think they've been looking forward to it uh, since the time that I hurt you by defeating you in a duel. Yeah, over that's, your wife's honor. Like they, the, the listenership, I think, has been rearing for that like pushback that seven yeah. of accounts. I mean, look how popular Avengers are. So, I mean, a good avenging stories is great. Moving on <laughs> from that, uh, uh, I I could I was trying to find a way to to vocally express in sounds that the podcast tape recording equipment would pick up ugh. the look that I gave Michael just now, and I just couldn't. So, gentle listener, I'm going to let you fill that in just for yourself. Imagine the look that is filled with not only sexual tension, <laughs> but also. A hatred of oneself that one has projected onto another, and also hunger Wait. for the ground meat of that person's flesh. What are you calling me? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> you just said a <laughs> bunch of things, so that's clearly. I'm a just lie. describing the look that you gave me. Wait, I forgot what Karen said 15 minutes ago. Can I say it? I think I can say it. Say. What? <laughs> Never mind. Oh, oh, yeah. No, yeah, you can say it. Okay. Yeah. That's... Wait, say what? Um, say uh, first paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I hate you. <laughs> I know. Really, that's what I should have said and just end around in this whole conversation. Yeah. So, so this book is good it is from good. the first words that are said in it beyond, like, the, I mean, even the title is good, but beyond the title page and the dedication. Yep. I remember my own childhood vividly, dot, dot, dot. I knew terrible things, but I knew I mustn't let adults know I knew it would scare them. Mm -hmm. Not Neil Gaiman's words, but Maurice Sendak's words. Yep. Um, From 1993. Yes. Maurice Sendak, of course, wrote Where the Wild Things Are, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a number of other excellent works that did traumatize a lot of children who did also read them repeatedly. I think summarizes all of our relationship with Maurice, Maurice Sendak. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> QED? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, no, but they, it does set up uh, the uh, dichotomy that goes through yeah. this entire book, that, uh, that generational disparity. That Within the, the author himself. Yes. Or the narrator The himself. narrator, yeah, who as an adult has forgotten his childhood and then spends the entire book remembering and then by the end of the book has forgotten again. Right, right. Which I always feel like, and maybe this is just one of those willing suspension of disbelief things, like, problematizes the whole narrative. Yep. Like, how is he telling the story if within telling of the story he's, he's forgetting forgotten. the story? Yep, yep. Um, no, and I think... I. Honestly, I think it is just a willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah, yeah. On this. Which I'm fine with. Right. Except part of me isn't, because part of me needs all of my stories to be 100% like scientifically accurate. Or at least scientifically plausible. Okay. Okay. I, I, I gotcha. I buy it. Which, I mean, the rest of the story clearly is. Yes. Yeah. The story oh. has its own internal consistency. Which, scientific. speaking of, we have been very discourteous to our listeners. Oh. We need to pause <gasps> yes, we for do. a minute and just let them read this book. Now, yep. this book, gentle listener, uh, if if you've been listening and always wanting to read but not having the time, this book, you really should bloody have the time. It's 178 pages. Yeah. With it is, nice wide spacing. Yeah, it is the line. not a long it book. It will go quick. Yeah. So, we're going to pause shorter than usual. Yep. Just to keep you honest, mm-hmm. but we're going to pause, let you go read this book. Wasn't that great? Right? All right. <laughs> Very good. So, now we can discuss the, the text of the book. Except, yep. first, I want to say. Yes. Something not the text of this book. Oh, okay. So, uh, I was, you know, this book in particular has been on my short list of big, books to pick for this show for a lot, like, probably since the beginning of this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always wanted to do a Neil Gaiman and... Um, you know, there are a handful of his books. In fact, almost all of his books, like, I think would work quite well on this show. Um, but, like, when I tried to just say, okay, we probably can only do one game and at least, like, for a while. Right. Um, like, which one do you want? And it's always this one. It's always been this one. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, part of that is for reasons that will probably come up later, but uh, it, it was interesting because, you know, my, my running list of books to pick next is usually five to ten books long. Like, I have, you know, a solid handful that I've narrowed it down to, and and I sort of put off picking because it's so hard until, like, the last possible moment when I feel I need to go into the podcast having picked something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this book... Almost was just, I was almost forced to pick it by the fact that you picked A Wrinkle in Time for the last full book that we read. Yeah. Um, because in many ways, this book is like, um, I, I you know, and I, I want to be careful. I don't want to try to say that, like, this book was directly inspired by A Wrinkle in Time, necessarily. No. Um, I'm sure Gaiman has read A Wrinkle in Time because he Probably. seems to have read every book. <laughs> I think you're correct. <laughs> um, and besides that, you know, he I, I think I've seen him, at least offhandedly, talk about Madeline Langle as a brilliant author, yeah. which is only right and proper. Right. Um, well, and that's sort of like, um, they, they both kind of exist within the same sort of genre or at least sister genres of like that sort well, of magical even, realism it's sort yeah of. it's well it's still fantasy but it's yeah. not fantasy as a lot of people sort of narrowly define it right like my uh i've met some like friends of some of of i think actually of my parents-in-law who, who were you know writers like were part of a writer's group and when I told them that I like to write, I said, you know, they said, what do you like to write? And I said, fantasy. And they said, oh, okay, J.R.R. Tolkien fantasy or George R.R. Martin fantasy? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, if anything, Neil Gaiman fantasy. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a very, that is a very distinct thing. And yeah. it's, you know, you, I mean, you could call it horror, but horror is arguably just a type of very dark fantasy um, sure, I and, you know it, uh, thinking about this, I I, I might um I, 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 this those... this phrase came into my head, and uh-huh. I don't know if I've thought of it previously or if I thought of it just now while we're talking. Right. But Neil Gaiman's kind of go-to genre. I mean, he he writes outside of it too. But I think what you could describe his go-to genre as is kind of not magical realism, but mythological realism. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very fair because it's um in a sense you could call it call it horror especially this book but sure um all of his books because one of the like classically accepted uh like lit crit definitions of the horror genre is this idea that um an alternate and very dangerous reality sort of erupts into the safe everyday reality sure. of our humdrum world and that's most of what Gaiman does and in mm-hmm. that very if, much what he does in this book yeah exactly and and I mean this book is closer to a classical horror novel than probably most of his other works I would say sure. but, um, if you need your definition of fantasy to be completely alternate world you know that mm-hmm. completely doesn't take place on this earth which is a garbage definition of fantasy but some people do cling to it um <laughs> then Neil Gaiman is not a fantasy writer right um but I think to to uh, tie some of these threads together, he's similar to, like we said, Madeline Langle, mm-hmm. um, similar to uh, Ray Bradbury, yes. um, who is another one of his... his uh, uh, Inspirations. Yeah, yeah, very much strong inspirations. Um, even similar to Gene Wolfe, to some extent, mm-hmm. in that it's, it's not fantasy... Uh, as you might expect it if like you are only familiar with the genre that as Tolkien kind of created it um but there's not really anything else you could justifiably call it is the very long-winded way of saying that in like classical definitions of genres and things this, this is nothing but fantasy right and um the thing about Wrinkle in Time is that it's in some ways, it's almost the perfection of a genre of stories that you could almost call uh, children's fantasy, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that genre of stories has very strong connections, uh, sort of, I guess, spiritually and philosophically, to the genre of sort of like 
boys and girls own adventure stories, um, which is a genre that, you know, Gaiman's narrator within this book reads out of. You know, mm-hmm. he, he reads uh, stories that are very clearly sort of the Bobsy Twins <laughs> or, you know, the Hardy Boys or uh, Tom Swift type. Um, you know, they're never quite one for one, but the, you you know what these these uh, inspirations were from. And like, Wrinkle in Time draws a lot on that type of story. And I think that generation of um, fantasy author uh, sort of takes a lot from the spirit of those stories and you can see that spiritually drawn forward even into books like harry potter yeah um you know the some critic i forget who said that harry potter's success was based on the fact that it combined two of the most popular ever genres of Mm. fiction which were the english children's fantasy novel and the english children's school story Mm -hmm. um so uh this is all an extremely long-winded way of saying uh, that I would not say that like this book is a direct reply to um, A Wrinkle in Time, though maybe it is. Like is. I'd love to think it was, and in some mm. ways it reads like it is. But it's a reply to that, sort of the whole genre or set of very closely related genres that produced A Wrinkle in Time, among other similar stories yeah it's in the same sphere right Mm -hmm. but it's more complicated than that Mm -hmm. because in being sort of a reply to this genre it it complicates it because Mm -hmm. you know the thing about a wrinkle in time is it it's you know a third person narrative but it's very closely tied in to meg wallace's third perspective and how old is limited yeah but third person like very limited yeah um, like almost to the point that if you changed all the pronouns mm-hmm. and nothing else, you could just make this a first person story yeah. almost. Um, so, uh, that said, Meg is how old in A Wrinkle in Time? Just oh, 13, she's in high 13, school. 14? I think 14. Okay. 14 or 15. If she's, she's gotta be on the young side of high school though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think she's in high school. She might be middle school now that I'm thinking. Ugh. As much yeah. as I claim to love that book, I'm failing. <laughs> you failed the failed. Wrinkle in Time trivia. I did. I feel like that should be a loss, but Karen didn't put it in the rules. No, nope, so she didn't. So technically safe. I'm safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but like um, tween ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, much as I hate that portmanteau, <laughs> um, it's okay. I feel like you do too, and you're yeah. the one who let it fall from your lips. So. I did. I yeah. Like a. Rotten rose petal. Bunge it from my lips. Uh, um, so, uh, so yeah, this is those. This is a genre that's very much from the child's point of view, and certainly yes. the child in these books learns and grows, and you know changes, and there's real character development and so forth. But at the end of the book, they are still a child. Mm-hmm. Now, this book, in fact, trickily, um, and I'm trying to see if I can find passage that i'm suddenly thinking of and i'm not sure i can uh but he right at the end when he's sort of summarizing doing like the closest thing that the narrator's doing like the closest thing that this book comes to the last chapter of a dickens novel where he just does a paragraph about what happened to everybody yep um he says you know, I was a child at the beginning of this book, and I was a child at the end of it. I don't think I learned anything or, or uh, you know, grew, which, first of all, is a lie. Oh, yes. And second of all, is not even true within the story, because this is not just a child's story. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole tension of the story has to do with the fact that he experienced these things as a child, and now is reliving them as an adult who also has forgotten them. Yep, yep. It, it's it, it's it's a fascinating thing. When when I first it's weird. Here here's what's weird. Uh-huh. This book is weird because it's bookended by the adult kid. <laughs> right. The adult narrator. Um, where he starts out at a funeral and then comes back to his childhood home where all these events happen right. and experiences everything at the end. Uh, we see him again as that adult, you know, sitting on the shore of the or- ocean, um, uh, 
outside the farmhouse by the the right. duck the duck pond there. Right. Um, and so it's it's a bookend and. Right. It's a weird bookend because nothing really interesting as far as the story is concerned happens in those bookends yes. unless you think of who this character is in the context of everything that happened within this whole story. Right. And I, I don't know how what else I'm trying to say about that, but it's interesting. Well, and in some ways, like, just the, the, uh, the bookends almost contain... The say ten pages maybe of bookends almost contain more of the important elements of the story mm -hmm. than at least as far as what the story is rather than what happens in the story um, than the hundred seventy pages between the bookends. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, here it is on page one seventy. Um, a story only matters, I suspect, to the extent that the people in the story change. Yeah. But I was seven when all of these things happened, and I was the same person at the end of it that I was at the beginning, wasn't I? So was everyone else. They must have been. People don't change. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Okay, here... Does anything in the story, to your mind, support the sentence, people don't change? Nope. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Um... In fact, the whole story can kind of be characterized as a coming of age. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also more than that. It's like a religious sort of transformation that right. undergoes. Right, and that's the thing. <clears throat> if this story is not about a character who changes, it's about a character encountering the infinite. Yes. And experiencing the eternal. Yeah. Um. You know, and like... You could, this is, I suspect, just like a lot of uh, Shakespeare's most sort of uh, um, infinite reaching plays, you could argue that this book makes almost any religious perspective, right? Some, some probably stronger than others, but you could argue so many different religious perspectives into this book. Mm -hmm. So when you say, you know, it's this encounter with the eternal, you, it's it's hard to to pin it down beyond that statement. Right. Um, like, I mean, there's that whole scene where he's in the ocean and kind of literally does that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and that's the thing. It's, it's as much about what you miss as it is about what you see. Yeah. Um, it, it honestly reminds me of James Joyce in some ways. Okay. Um, every, Joyce said every story in Dubliners is about a character having an epiphany. Yeah. But not knowing that they had an epiphany. Mm -hmm. Except for the last one, but sure. all the other stories. You know, the epiphany is in the mind of the reader. Sure. Um, and I think, I think, I don't know how thrilled or uh, supportive Neil Gaiman would be of the idea that he was doing something that James Joyce did, but I think that's <laughs> what he's doing here. No, and I, I, I like that, too, because um, in the way Neil Gaiman prevents his narrator from actually having that epiphany is he forgets. Yes, yes. Or it's almost as though he has the epiphany too many times. Sure, um, sure. But he can't hold it any of the times. Yeah. Um, maybe I've shared this thought with you before, and it kind of ties in with all of this. Yes. From the first time I read this book, um, this book is all about or is a literary exploration of Schrodinger's cat. Yes, you have told me this before. And reading it again, that thought was only reinforced for me. Yeah. It ties into this whole idea that there's this unknown in the box, the cat in the box, right. um, with this uh, radiation that's going to you know, kill it eventually. If right. you open the box, though, it's going to automatically die. Right. The observation of a thing changes it. Right. So there's that change. And well, okay. The Schrodinger's cat uh, thought experiment is not that the cat automatically dies if you open the box. Mm. It's that before you open the box, the cat is both alive and dead. Right. And afterwards, it's only one. Yes. Yeah. So it's a reduction. Um, oh, okay. But well, the cat could be alive, but he could be dead. Right, as long as the box both. is closed. But when you open the box, then it is dead. No, there's it's either there's alive. A, there's a mechanism that causes it to die. No. Yeah. There's In a the mechanism. I've heard anyway. You've heard the wrong version. No, I like the version I'm I've heard because sure. it reinforces the concept that the observation of the thing actually changes it. 
Well, or but it, it could be it could be dead or alive before you open the box, but when you open it, it is dead. Okay, here's here's the real version. Okay. The I'm glad neither of us is pausing to like access the infinite like resources of the internet and look this up. Not to go no. into the ocean. I'm to gonna just tell you what the knowledge. real version is. It's a thought experiment where you take a box, mm-hmm. and I didn't think we were going to have to re-explain this, because this <sighs> thought experiment is everywhere, and every time everyone re-explains it, like no one listening knows. <laughs> Except we all, if we read, like, speculative fiction at all, we all know. Except right. apparently not. No, I so, know. <laughs> there's a box, right? Yeah. You put a cat into this box. Yes. You put into the box a type of mechanism that is triggered by... Um, the breakdown of a certain uh, acid or something. Yeah. And that acid has a an exactly 50-50 chance of breaking down. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the acid does break down, it will trigger the mechanism and kill the cat. Right. Um, but if it doesn't, you will open the box and the cat will be fine. So as long as the box is closed and then you have to give the acid long enough to have that coin toss chance of breaking down, mm-hmm. uh, the... Uh, as so you close the box, you give it the length of time that could kill the cat. Now, until you open the box, the cat is both alive and dead, right. is the theory. Once you open the box, that collapses that dual reality into a single reality. Sure. So there's a guess, 50-50 shot of the cat I guess it doesn't actually living. matter if the cat is alive or dead when you open the box. The version that I heard in my AP physics class in high school was that it automatically kills the cat when you open it doesn't matter all right uh as long as the box is closed the cat is both alive and dead that's the point yes and, then when you and open also it, it is one or the other and also okay. that's why this discussion was allowed to go on for so long <laughs> is because it does illustrate the point that we were making <laughs> yes. in the first place but also gentle listener if you are like some sort of physicist or other scientifically knowledgeable person and you know that i am right please write in <laughs> and tell michael that i am right and, and if, the rest of you who actually know, write in and tell Ethan that I'm right. Yeah, I was going to say, if you know that Michael is right, then just keep it to yourself. <laughs> if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say anything. Right. You jerk. <laughs> um, but I, I can't um, I can't imagine that Neil Gaiman didn't consciously think about Schrodinger's cat when he wrote this book. Especially because oh, that there I is have. a literal cat in a box that is literally at... Before the box is opened, it is the cat that died. Well, there are so many cats in this book. Yes. And that's definitely one of them, but they mm-hmm. all are Schrodinger's cat-ish to yep. one extent or another. Yep. They are both the same cat and not the same cat. And yeah. the cat is both alive and dead yeah. all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the, the point of it being that as long as you don't observe the thing, then your reality isn't changed. Right. By it. Because right. it's both to you. And so your reality remains the same. As soon as you observe it, then you have a new reality to deal with. Right. And that's kind of the experience that the narrator goes through. Right. There's something aside from his vision that he doesn't observe, and as long as the adults aren't observing and it's not affecting them either, but as soon as he observes it, then, then his reality has changed. His reality has changed. And, and how it changes for him is observing someone die. Right. Or not die, but a dead body, essentially. Right, right, right. That's uh, this this trauma for this, what, eight-year-old child? Yeah, seven. Six, seven, seven or eight. eight whichever. Yeah. Um, seven, yeah, because it yeah. starts with him at his seventh birthday. Okay, I was trying to remember which yeah. birthday it was. Yeah. So, were you going anywhere? further with that or was that no, the, no. the point that you had that's that's essentially um, the point i mean and that's that is excellent uh now i feel like i had something to build on <laughs> with it like you do in a discussion but now well, i have maybe, no like, idea what it was something to go with this is scarfatch the or Ur- oh Ursula Monk. okay yeah yes and that that we may be about to say the same thing right. actually say because it. that's that's what it made me think of is his whole relationship with Ursula Moncton. Mm-hmm. Like, once this monster that he encounters shows up in the form of Ursula Moncton, that's exactly the the um, observation versus non-observation thing is yep. exactly what he's uh, encountering or experiencing mm-hmm. here. Is, um, yeah, so Ursula Moncton, to all the other members of his family who are not observing her true nature, um, is this beautiful, sweet, like, brilliant nanny um 
troubling sex object for the father. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, another trauma that the seven-year-old boy yes, gets to observe. Gets to observe and doesn't understand. Yep. Or yep. at least claims Which that in the moment he didn't brilliantly understand. Brilliantly written. Yes. How he doesn't understand, but the reader, the reader knows. The reader knows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, did he really not understand, or did he just not consciously understand? Did it really? Or not is he trying him? to present an innocence that he doesn't actually have? Like, or is he trying to preserve an innocence yeah, yeah, that's what by I mean. not observing? You know, again, it's that, that whole interplay between observing and not observing. But Ursula Moncton knows or finds out, it's a little bit unclear, but it doesn't really matter, that the narrator does know who she is. Yep. Um, and that uh, observation... Well, he was her way into this world. Well, right, but, you know, there's there's some question about whether he's figured out that, you know, she's the same well, as this monster that he encountered, okay, right? sure. But once it's clear to her that he does know, everything changes. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, you have... Because there were, there were she, relationships... She actively is opposed to him. Yes, because for a time, and if he'd been willing to sort of mm-hmm. almost actively not observe her for who she was... The at least implication is that their relationship could have been just fine on a surface level. Sure. Um, but once he observe, makes that observation, he collapses the two possible realities into this one where he knows, then that act of observation changes the whole yeah. reality. And she almost kind of tries to control the reality, too. I don't think she oh, actually yeah. says the phrase, but the, the attitude is kind of there when she's the nanny. Yeah. That, uh, that whole attitude of children should be seen and not heard. Yes. So she's kind of trying to control the observation of him. Yes. And so his effect on reality is limited yes. by her. And so she, she kind of recognizes that principle a little bit. Yeah. Um, even though she herself is trapped by that principle, right? Her whole aim, like she, she comes into this world and like it, it's kind of an accident. She's kind of, you get the impression that she's whatever in her own world. Like monsters are defined in here as they're only monsters to those who observe them as monsters. Yeah, yeah. But you know, to in their own reality, they're not the monsters. Right. And so that's that's kind of her reality in in her world. She's not a monster. She's just this innocent creature that comes into our world and. Right. And because she's in our world, she is a monster. She's right. observed that way. And she stumbles in and finds out that she can make people happy. Right. Uh, or at least thinks she can. Thinks she can. And that's just it because she only observes so far. She right. sees that momentary happiness that she gives them without actually seeing the negative results where, like, people are choking on the coins. You know, she's giving them money, but they're choking. <laughs> right. They're literally choking some yeah. of them on this on this so-called gift. And that's another one of the central themes that I wanted to bring out um, in this book is this disconnect between progress and benefit. Mm. Um, or... Uh, this this disconnect between like what the adult world thinks will be better um versus what is actually good um or in other words does getting what you want does that equal goodness and does something that's new that's you know supposed to be progress is that uh uh is that inherently good? Sure. Um, and I think that the answer pretty clearly within this book is is no. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of just... And I, I found myself underlining them, especially in the first third of this book. There are a lot of just little ways that that idea shows up. Um, like at, at the beginning of chapter 3, page 25, they they lose their, their uh, white mini car, um, or to put it as a narrator with their auto... Uh, due to this this opal miner killing himself yep. in the back seat, which like kind of can't keep that car anymore for you know variety of of relate of related reasons. So I'm distracted for a second by the last paragraph of chapter two. Now, page twenty four. My father went up to his bedroom to talk to my mom. Blah blah blah. I dropped the silver sixpence into my piggy bank. It was the kind of china piggy bank from which nothing could be removed. 
One day, when it could hold no more coins, I would be allowed to break it, but it was far from full. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just an encapsulation of the Schrodinger's cat thing yep. that we've been talking about, along with... Um, it's it's unobservable right now. Yes, it's, it's exactly. In um, its box. Yeah. <laughs> or piggy bank, as the case may be. And it also relates to some of the stylistic stuff that we were talking about, because this is one of the things that Neil Gaiman does masterfully throughout his works is not just sort of take these wild like fantasy elements or mythological elements and just sort of impose them on the real world but does the reverse Mm -hmm. um like lord dunsany who i think has been mentioned on this podcast before uh who is another big influence on gaiman does this extremely well and i know gaiman's pointed it out where he finds not like the he doesn't impose the fantastic on the normal he finds the normal within the fantastic Mm -hmm. or finds the fantastic within the normal rather so it's this you know because that that piggy bank that's you know i don't know if it's so common like with our generation but for every generation before us and i know i even had one like that when i was a kid um is one of the like most mundane encapsulations of the schrodinger's cat thought experiment like Mm -hmm. one of the most uh sort of complicated concepts within quantum physics um you know is within this this image of the piggy bank Mm -hmm. okay so that that aside uh i never saw the white it just occurred to me that until we hear from an expert on schrodinger's cat Uh uh-huh schrodinger's cat is both of our versions yes absolutely (laughs) um I hate you, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, chapter three. I never saw the white mini again. Two days later, on Monday, my father took delivery of a black rover with cracked red leather seats. It was a bigger car than the mini had been, but not as comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a bunch of... I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to find any of the other sentences like that quick here, but there are a bunch of just little things like that. Um, well, and it's it, it easily slips by in a yeah. cursory read because something else about what's great about this book is it's your childhood. I mean, yes, this is yes. how children experience the world, and something that's new is new and exciting, but also there's something, you know, that new car smell. I can remember the new car smell making me feel sick. Right, exactly. And it's, and it's again, that, that idea that... Uh, you know, to an adult, oh, it's a bigger car. It therefore, better. Leather seats, like therefore, it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this just idea <clears throat> that blind progress and biggerness for mm-hmm. the sake of progress is inherently better, right? Um, when that's you know, which which that applies to the generational disparity aspect of this book too. That yeah. the bigger human is inherently better or more right than right. the littler human. The, right. the adult is better than the child is the the right. vision that adults have but we see in this book that children know a lot of things that the adults don't or experience a lot of things that the adults don't right and that's that's something that's really fascinating yes absolutely and you know that's sort of a theme of um children's like ch- literature that's written for children that attains classic status um mm-hmm. Usually is written by an adult who, through whatever means, and I've had my theories and I don't know that I like any of them, but through whatever means, some writers seem to retain the ability to think in a childlike way um, while also thinking in an adult way. And you yeah. need that sort of more developed adult brain Being to... able to be both child and adult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hate you. Um, you need that both child and adult brain to both sort of, you know, tell a story that will connect with children, but to tell a long enough and complex enough story and to hold all of that complexity that even a fairly short novel inherently has, you need the adult brain to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's it's almost this commentary on the type of novel that this is disguised as. Yeah. Right, so it's both that kind of novel and a commentary on that kind of novel. <laughs> You're just going to keep doing this this <laughs> yes, whole time, are you not? Absolutely. Um, there's there's a line that I marked uh, in my copy. Uh, it's on page 112, and I think we share the same page numbers. We do. Um, I think this is the only edition of this book that has come out. Sure. So if anyone has well, this book at home... Mine has the PS in it, so... 
don't know if yours has the PS. Mine does not have the PS. Ah, um, so... Or the POS, if those are different things. <laughs> uh, but my, uh, the I, like, I think functionally there's only one edition as far as layout yeah. and page numbers yeah. so far. I could be wrong. I've never seen like a trade paperback size of this book. No, I haven't either. So if... One. If the I, I guess I don't know about international editions, but if the general True. listener is reading an American edition along with us, all of our page numbers should match up. I should think. be. Yeah. So page one twelve on. near the bottom of the page, last full paragraph, uh, about four lines up. Um, uh, Letty is talking here, and she's talking about adults. Grown ups don't look like grown ups on the inside either. I, I went up even farther than the four lines. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, outside, they're big and thoughtless, and they always know what they're doing. Inside, they look just like they always have, like they did when they were your age. So the truth is, there aren't any grown ups, not one in the whole wide world. So the point she's making there is that everybody's a child, right? And this does maybe tie in. Um, and become a better explanation of that line that was troubling me earlier about people don't change. Yeah. Right? It's not necessarily... It's almost talking about two completely different types of change between the type of change that you expect characters to go through in a story that, like, Mm -hmm. is almost supposed to be an inherent part of a good story Mm -hmm. versus how she means people don't change. Is that idea that there is this childish thing in all of us and that those right. of us who look the most competent are really just the best at disguising pretending. our childishness yes disguising pretending and yep. guessing yeah which i think is exactly what the narrator is doing at the end of the book yes. he's pretending he's an adult now he's still a child yeah, yeah but he's pretending that things don't change even though his experience as a child is that things change and that's right. really what's so metaphysical about all of this right that the inner child knows things change but the adult can't let things change there's right. a line too where it talks about the the difference of experiences between adults and children and it's adults follow paths children explore yes which yes. like that's just a brilliant line it's a brilliant brilliant line and what it illustrates is not that people don't change but that adults resist change yes well, and there's well, something... children are all about change because they're always learning and growing. Yeah. And the difference, I think, I think what it boils down to, the difference between children and adults is that a child is allowed and allowing himself to be a child. Right. An adult is not allowing himself to be a child. Right. Or allowed to be a child. And so right. if you allow yourself to be that child, then you can grow and change. If you don't, then you resist the change and pretend it's not there. Right. And I... Somewhere I heard... I read... Uh... It must have been some theorist, um, but I read I, I read this distinction between children being porous, where adults are brittle, um, and that's that's really in that yeah. that line about um, uh, adults follow paths, children explore. Right? Children are mm-hmm. porous; they're they're sort of allowing the world and the the experience in, you know, and just sort of letting it change them. Whereas adults feel that they have to sort of cut themselves off at a certain point. That in order to be an adult, you can't just be open to the world. You have to to uh, just make a decision and stick with it, even if it's a wrong decision or a bad decision, or you're not taking in all of the available information. Being an adult is about just sort of reducing that complexity through necessity. Yeah. Um to to exist in the world as an adult you have to reduce it yes exactly which in case it's not clear i think is bull yeah <laughs> but, but that it's also very true that's you know um right I, I i tend to sometimes think that the highest level of frustration i have with a person is directly related to the point at which they allow themselves to stop exploring yeah, um, and to stop being open and interested in new things. Um, and this, you know, this book is about the dichotomy between that being true, as well as there being things that don't change. This this encounter with the mm-hmm. infinite and with the eternal. Um, but... It keeps reminding me of Philip K. Dick, um, okay. who is another. I. Th- I, I'm fairly sure an influence that Neil Gaiman has named directly, certainly a major influence on that whole generation of writers mm-hmm. that 
Gaiman takes his he probably his chief influences from um because this is like what philip k dick claimed all of his novels were about mm-hmm. um he has the brilliant quote uh the what is it it's oh, i can't remember it's oh reality reality is that which um when you stop believing in it doesn't go away um mm-hmm. which is a fascinating quote from him because all of his novels, like a, a sloppy, surface-level, not-careful reading of almost any of his novels, could makes him seem like the most postmodern sort of, you know, reality-is-a-construct type of writer. But what he said he's the most interested in is worlds that cr- are crumbling around the protagonists. Mm-hmm. So he's... He's, you know, he has that bedrock idea that reality, there is some such a thing as reality, it's what doesn't go away when you stop believing in it, but then he questions what does go away when you stop believing in it, and goes towards that end of the spectrum rather than the opposite end. Sure. Um, and yeah, that's... Which, like, it, that's, it's an interesting quote, because when you say it, it makes sense. Right. But then, when you actually start thinking about it, then you actually can't necessarily think of anything that falls into any strict category right (laughs) right of going away or not going away and that's you know philip k dick was a very metaphysical writer i think he would have been most comfortable in the chapter in this book where uh um the narrator goes into the ocean and knows everything temporarily oh which is such like one of I am unashamed to say one of, I think, my favorite passages in all of literature. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. That 10-page chapter, I mean, that's the reason this book was, if I had to pick one Neil Gaiman book to only ever talk about, it would be this book. Yep. Much as I love American Gods and a lot of the other, you know, short stories. so wonderfully done, too, because, like, as much as I'm sure Neil Gaiman could tell us everything... Uh, that that this narrator knew, you know, knowing right. everything, Neil Gaiman could tell us. Yeah, that. he does know everything. Right. So he could have revealed all that, but instead he just teased the fact that he did, and the way he teased it made us believe that he did. Right. That he act. This narrator actually did know everything right. at that moment. Right. But then was removed from it and stopped knowing everything. Right. Which and which gives an interesting twist on this Schrodinger's cat thing. Right. That the box can close again. Right, yeah. Which is is how the book itself is. Chapter or the yeah. prologue yeah. opens the box, and then the epilogue closes the box. Yes, and we're back to things being that duality. Yes, that's chapter realities. thirteen, by the way, that we're referencing. Of course, it's was, chapter thirteen. Of course, it is. Um, starting on page one forty one uh, to one fifty, and just like every time I read those ten pages. I am at a very real risk of doing exactly what Letty warns the narrator could happen to him mm-hmm. and just going back and rereading those 10 pages the length of time it takes to read the novel and then quitting. <laughs> yeah. Um, just literally getting lost in that chapter about the ocean the way Letty says the narrator would do if he allowed himself to stay in Wind up it dissolving in it. In it, yes. Yeah. And that, having that chapter become all of literature. So what you're saying is... This book is the lane, and that chapter is the ocean. Yes, one hundred percent. Which actually, structurally, I think does work out. Yeah, pretty, pretty freaking well. Um, yeah. So, and so again, within this idea that the narrator has that people don't change, and that the narrative has that I think agrees with us that that is BS, <laughs> and this idea that to be an adult you have to become brittle and and resist and refuse all change i think the book agrees that that's bs but then it unleashes this chapter on us that is literally an attempt to describe that which does not change Mm -hmm. that which is always true and that's that's how philip dick also described uh sort of the idea of reality as the the you know what we think of as reality is really this construct superimposed on reality Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, if we could sort of strip everything away and it gets very Gnostic here and I'm not a hundred percent on board with it, but it's like this idea that if we could strip everything away, there would be this bedrock below and that's what reality is. That's what truth is. Yeah. 
I think that's uh, probably as good a place as any to, to end this episode. And in fact, I don't think we should do the second episode, probably. Because <laughs> I don't think we're going to top that. But you know us. You know, we're going to talk more we've, than we need to. We've <laughs> never been content to just stop while we're ahead. Nope. <laughs> Especially not with a book that you know you can read in the time it takes to listen to one episode of this book. Or of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So. For, sure, or for sure two episodes. <laughs> for sure two, matter. yeah. Um, so don't listen to our podcast. Just read Neil Gaiman's book. Yeah. Now that you've listened to like 50 minutes of it. So. <laughs> uh, so, excellent. Uh, so. Any closing thoughts before we end and come back in two weeks? Nothing that I wouldn't just open up another half hour's worth right. of discussion. Then we'll save it for two weeks from now. Uh, so gentle listener, keep reading along with uh, at Neil himself's The Ocean at the End of the oh Lane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I want them to follow him on Twitter because he's a really good tweeter. I mean, he is an excellent so, tweeter. Yeah. Like, if if one day t- tweeting is considered an art form and there are, like, tweeting displays in museums, Neil, Neil Gaiman, Gaiman will, will be the, like, main exhibit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely he will. So, yes, please read along with the book. Uh, let us know your thoughts. You can contact us in the tapestryradio.org contact section. Uh, or you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, it's a, a closed group, um, but uh, request to join, and as long as you're not a robot or a monster from another dimension, we will let you join. Or a scantily clad Russian woman who doesn't exist. Yep, that too. Um, <laughs> uh, we will let you join if you're not any of the above. Yes. Um, or a scantily clad Russian man who doesn't exist. We, yeah, you know, we don't, we we don't discriminate between genders. Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, follow us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Uh, follow our network, the Tapestry Radio Network, on Twitter as well. Uh, enjoy some of the other awesome shows we have on Tapestry, uh, like... Intermission, our audio drama podcast. And Pokemon Rollout, our actual play Pokemon Tabletop United RPG podcast. And hopefully some new offerings to come. Yes. Several things are cooking on several burners. None of them are cooked enough to uh, let me be any less vague bookie than that. But here we are. So just, you know, uh, comment, you okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Uh, Um, Oh, read my webcomic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, the... A uh, fairy tale film noir mashup about a twelve-year-old girl detective who doesn't take any crap. Mm-hmm. Um, pin, that's pinporterdetective.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. I think that's all we have to promote. Uh, find Unless, me on Twitter at yeah. m g l i l i e n t h a l. Find me on Twitter at bjartlett b j a r t l e t t. Uh, I don't post very often, but I do check it somewhat regularly, so, yeah, you know. Same boat. Yeah, I feel like you post more than I do, but I maybe not, that's not a Mostly high bar to like clear, though. quotes from my wife. Um, <laughs> she doesn't have a Twitter, and so I tweet on her quotable. behalf. <laughs> very good. I should post quotes from my wife. She is also quotable. Yes. Uh, Hashtag wife quotes. <laughs> It'll be a thing now. Yep. Um, it probably already is a thing. Yeah, it probably is. So, uh, that's yep. all, folks. Abidi, abidi, abidi. Abidi. That's all. I was doing Porky Pig, but I was oh, doing the abidi, reverse. Abidi, abidi. That's all. And also, neither of us are going to do a Porky Pig. No, no, I can't do a Porky Pig voice. Anyway, it's okay, our bye. party. We'll cry if we want to.
Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.